Father, we come before you this evening in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for this night. I thank you for the privilege of being able to meet and to discuss what's happened before us. Lord, we've said it every night that we've met, and we say it again tonight. We are standing on the shoulders of giants, and men fought and died over various theological aspects that got us to where we are today. And Lord, I pray that not only would we have appreciation, but we would have a deeper understanding of the truths that have been preserved throughout the ages of the church and are poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit, illuminated by the Word of God that we have. We thank you for that. I pray, God, our appreciation for what you've done in your sovereign hand over history would be felt as we look at the Council of Chalcedon. Lord, we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as you will see, you have a much thicker book today. Um, and it's not hole-punched, so forgive me in advance. Couldn't find the hole-puncher, and it would have taken us at least an hour to do it anyway. So um, what I want you to do is I want you to take the first two pages, which has the print, I want you to grab it and stick it in the back because we are actually going to start uh, with the very first slide. Now, full disclosure, I have no idea who put this together, uh, these slides. I wish I could tell you it was me, um, but I was outlining uh, the chapter, and as I was searching for some stuff online, I found an actual outline of Mark Knoll's book, which we're using, Turning Points, uh, on this chapter. And I said, praise the Lord, pass the potatoes, this will be very helpful, because the very first thing in my outline is the very first thing on the slide, and I thought, this is actually visually much more uh, pleasing and helpful. So you'll also notice, and this is all accidental, but there are space at the bottom, and you can take notes if you want to. So... Um, the, uh, the, the subject we are discussing, the moment in church history, and remember, Mark Knoll's whole point in this book is looking at some of the decisive turning points in church history. So we're looking at the big major events. It is a very high-level look. Everybody knows what that means? It means we're not down in the weeds and the details of all the things that went on, but we're trying to get an overall picture of major impacts in church history. Last week, we talked about AD 325, which was what? Council of Nicaea. Uh, this week, we are in 451, so we've fast-forwarded uh, several a hundred and some odd years, uh, and things have stayed the same. Uh, there's controversy, and there's disruption uh, in the kingdom. There's been a lot of change, though, however, that happened after Nicaea, because remember, just by way of review, Nicaea was the first moment where the church ceased being persecuted, and uh, Emperor Constantine, he did not establish uh, Christianity as the religion of the state, that is not what he did, but what he did do is he sponsored the council, invited the bishops to show up so they could hash out uh, elements of the Trinity, and they could hash out the Arian controversy uh, where Arius said that Jesus is not God. He is a lesser created being. We even discussed how uh, in the modern day uh, Jehovah Witnesses and other groups are similar to that and that they deny that Jesus is God. But now that they've done that, there's several things that, that happen in the thoughts of Christians throughout the world and throughout the, the world as, uh, as understood by the Roman Empire in particular, where the church has flourished. Uh, if Jesus is, and this is your very first paper, if Jesus is what we said he was at the Council of Nicaea, he is not a creature, he is God in the flesh, then what in the world does that mean? That he is God in the flesh. So, uh, you can see here, uh, who is Jesus Christ? He's divine and human. If he is fully divine, 
how is he also human? And if he's both human and divine, how does that humanity and the divinity coexist? In other words, is it a mixture? Is Jesus in his humanity and Jesus in his divinity put in a blender and blended together? Is Jesus an exalted man that uh, is born so Mary had a baby uh, that is fully human and inserted in is the soul of the divine? Have you ever thought about how this works? How does it work? Well, that is what this council is about. Okay, let's go to the next page. <clears throat> two big issues, two big places. I've got it up here, which is maybe hard to see. You see Alexandria and Antioch. So uh, Alexandria is right here uh, in Egypt, incredibly important city in the early church in the, uh, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. And then Antioch, which is where, this is from Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, Paul, Barnabas, uh, spent a lot of time here. So really strong church presence in, uh, in both uh, Alexandria and in Antioch. These guys are always vying for supremacy. So what, here's what's happened. Now that the Council of Nicaea has happened, the emperors are now all Christian, and Christianity in 381 was declared the, the religion of the whole empire. When that happens, politics are mixed in with the church in an increasing amount. So these bishops, these leaders in these cities are incredibly important people. Their ideas and their theology is... Uh, it's, it's really not any different than today, where uh, if you get a bunch of church leaders together in a room, um, and somebody's supposed to be in charge, and somebody's supposed to be valued as the really smart one, and somebody's supposed to be valued as the really spiritual one, you know, you know what happens, right? Human nature is involved there, and there's political jockeying. Even, that even happens in a local church. There's, it, it's, it is the nature of humanity, and this is what's going on uh, in, in Rome. These, the folks at Antioch and the folks at Alexandria have some issues with one another, and they're always teaming up. So this is the east. Rome is clear over here. It's the western part of the empire. The empire has been uh, weakened, and the new headquarters, so to speak, of the Roman Empire is Constantinople. Anybody remember They Might Be Giants had that song? Anyway, uh, you can look it up later. Uh, it's nobody's business but the Turks. Anybody know? Nobody's seen? Okay, Abby does. Um, how do you know? How? Okay. Uh, it's modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, and it became the new center of influence of the Roman Empire. So they move really, the emperor is here because it's just a really strategically great place to be. These, the bishops in Alexandria, the bishops in Antioch, and the bishops in Constantinople are the bishops really of the east. And they're always kind of maneuvering with one another, having alliances and support, but they're still looking to Rome which we're going to see more and more of. They're still looking to Rome as having one of the central influences in terms of the bishops that are there. I'm not going to attempt to go into where, how do we get the modern Catholic Church and everything else like that. We can circle back to that discussion as we get into the East and West. But, but Rome... Uh, is clear over here in the West, but still wields a lot of spiritual clout and power, or politically spiritual power, if you want to say it that way. They're super important. But I just want you to kind of get an idea of the, the world of the Roman Empire at that time and where the churches are and the bishops and what's going on. And, and here, uh, and Mark Knoll makes this point, uh, the bishops of Antioch contend with the bishops of Alexandria and Constantinople for primacy in the Eastern Roman Empire. They, they want to exert the most influence. They want to be remembered for their contributions to the gospel, to the church. Uh, they want their way. Uh, bottom line, these are human beings, uh, and that's what's going on. And it's, uh, it will be funny before we're done today. So, turn, 
turn your paper with me if you would. This is just a reminder, I've already discussed this, Nicaea was Athanasius versus Arius. Um, Ken had asked the question, which I thought I would like to revisit at this moment. Ken's question last week was, if Arius was condemned at Nicaea, and he was, then why in the world was Athanasius just a few years later kicked out? Why did people kick him to the curb for holding to the Nicene Creed? If that was what won, then why was late? Because the Arius controversies continued and other disciples and supporters of Arius, because he was very influential, um, they, they start winning the day. And actually, Constantine later in his life is kind of swayed towards that direction himself. It was a very attractive thing that Arius was presenting. Um, and you can see the way uh, this is outlined. But the reason is Ari Arius and his, his heresy uh, kept popping up like mushrooms after a rain, and they had to keep squashing it. But there were periods that those mushrooms were really big <laughs> that popped up after the rain, theologically speaking, and influence uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the empire. So, but that doesn't change the fact that the church had come to an agreement that the Scripture teaches that Jesus is divine, He is fully God, and he is not a creature. But that brings the question, which we've already said, how is Jesus fully God and fully human? Um, there's two different uh, extremes. One comes out of Alexandria, and one comes out of Antioch. And here's, here's what this little slide is saying. There was, out of Alexandria... Uh, this idea that Christ is a fully integrated person. Problems. There's an incompleteness of the humanity of Jesus. And there's a potential changeability there. In other words, um, it, it pushes down the humanity of Jesus in its effort to lift up the deity. So, Scripture tells us that Jesus got hungry. Scripture tells us that Jesus got tired. Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So this, this group out of Alexandria, though, were emphasizing the deity. Um, the word man Christology, or the, uh, the Antioch position, was that Jesus had a fully divine and a fully human nature but they were super separated. So let's, let me look at those a little bit. You see here it says turn to page 69. That's if you have the older book. It's, it's page 63 in the newer book. Um, let me give you just a couple other uh, things about both of these positions. The, the word, the, the folks out of Alexandria, that their group eventually winds in uh, winds up becoming Apollinarianism. I know that's really important, right? Uh, if you want to write that down. They claim that Christ is not truly human because he had the word or the, the logos in place of the soul. The extreme version over here from Antioch, they, which was Nestorianism, they said that Christ's two natures are totally separate. Now he did say, I, I hold the two natures of his humanity and his divinity separate, but I, I worship them all together. The balanced view, which we're going to get into a lot, is Jesus Christ is one person existing in two natures, and this is called the hypostatic union. One person with two distinct natures that are not mixed together, not put in a blender, but, but also the two natures are distinct in Christ, and yet they are not separated totally. They are united in the person of Christ. Now, I, let me just stop here. I already know this is like, oh my gosh, this is, this is stuff I'm never going to remember. This is stuff that sounds like it's not useful at all. So I was just listening to uh, a theologian in Australia. His name is Michael Bird, and he is a funny guy. And he said he was teaching 
a history class, uh, and he was teaching on the Council of Chalcedon, and he had a worship leader wannabe in the class. This guy wants to be a worship leader, and he raises his hand as he's discussing the hypostatic union, and the eyes are glazing over, which I, I understand, and says... If I want to be a megachurch worship pastor, what in the world, what good is this hypostatic union? This is just a bunch of egg-headed nonsense that you guys are making too complicated. It's just about Jesus and love. Right? Isn't that what we all, that's our default position? So Michael Bird tells a story that he goes to uh, it goes on a mission trip and is actually in a situation where uh, they're able to have a discussion with them an imam, which is a Muslim pastor, if you want to say that, a, a the, the guy who leads the mosque service. And he, he has these Christians there, so there's some kind of dialogue, and this is this young guy, and the imam, because Muslims believe in Jesus. You guys know this? Muslims believe in Jesus, they actually believe that Jesus is going to come back a second time. Well, I believe that too. They happen to believe that Jesus is going to come back and set the Christians straight and, uh, and tell them about the holy, exalted prophet Muhammad. But they, do, they believe Jesus is a prophet. So, so they have reverence. They believe in the New Testament. They just believe it's a lesser uh, inspired word than the uh, Quran. So... so uh, they get this. This student gets in front of the imam, and he, the imam is asking. And they ask some really good questions because they do not believe Jesus is God in the flesh. And the imam is asking questions. Well, how could anything? How could God be in human form? And he's going around asking these people on the mission trip. And the kid who said, what good is the hypostatic union, says, he remembers this class and says, well, have you heard of the hypostatic union of Christ and the two natures in one person? He was able to answer the question because he had learned about this truth of who Jesus is. And really, you're reading over, and we just talked about it a little bit on Sunday, about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. And we're, as we go through the book of Mark, we're going to encounter the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ over and over. And, and what, we, what we should do is we should ask questions. How is Jesus fully God and fully man? How is the nature of God understood to be immutable, which means unchangeable? And yet, Christ stepped into time and became flesh. Well, isn't that a change? Have you ever thought? We should think. These are the things we, we should think. The Scripture sometimes feels complex, these concepts sometimes feel complex, but they're really questions that people have had throughout history. And Chalcedon is an attempt, and a successful one, it's actually this really interesting tightrope. When you really read this chapter, and I encourage you to read it, you really get the strong sense of the, the tightrope that was walked and really led by the Holy Spirit, because all these people... Alexandria and Antioch, they're furious with each other over this. So these, this slide just is words on a paper, but it represents passionate, angry, convinced people believing that the other group is casting shame and dirt on Jesus. Okay. Oh, I already mentioned this guy. Apollinarius. He's a part of the Word, Flesh, Christology uh, group, which was uh, over in Alexandria. Um, Jesus is divine. He has a combination of a divine soul and a human body. Jesus does not have a human center of life and consciousness. This is just 
so you know what some of the thoughts were. So go to the next slide, because this one will be fun for everybody. Everybody's like, finally, something that looks fun. I just thought this was funny. Uh, it's clear now that Jesus' body is human, but his mind is God's. <laughs> There's Jesus on the table. Uh, <laughs> and he calls it like a Frankenstein, where uh, the Logos, you see the brain in that can canister, the Logos, uh, the divine nature is going to be added to a human nature um, in a way that uh, has them uh, integrated, but puts down the humanity. Okay. Theodore, next page. Part of the word man Christology side of things, Antioch. Uh, Theodore was of a really weird place. I'm not even going to try to uh, pronounce, or I will, Mopsustia. Uh, Jesus is fully human and God. He has a fully human nature. He has a fully divine nature, which sounds a little closer to where we want to go. I'll go to the next page, Nestorius and the Theotokos controversy. Theotokos means the bearer of God. It is a reference to Mary. And something that Mark Knoll points out in the book is, here uh, in the 4th and the 5th century, there's already evidence of a strong emphasis on the importance of Mary. Um, now, there is not evidence of worship. There is not evidence of prayer to, or if there is, I'm missing it right now. Uh, so let me let me the idea of where Marian theology goes, um, where that we start talking about the perpetual virginity. There are some mentions of that, uh, meaning that Mary never ever was anything other than a virgin. Uh, that is a belief of the Catholic Church. Um, the belief that uh, Jesus was born and her virginity was not compromised, that she was never with Joseph. Um, the belief that James the brother of Jesus is not really a brother, he's a cousin. Um, the belief that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven in the same way that Jesus was bodily assumed into heaven. Um, the belief that uh, she is a mediatrix, uh, like Jesus is called a mediator, she's considered a mediator between Jesus and, and the Father in some way, um, or between us and Jesus, excuse me. That, that there, a lot of these Marian dogmas, um, they weren't here yet. However, there was a growing um, importance of Mary. And, I, and Mark Knoll says uh, a couple things about that in here. Let's see. Let me, I want to read you part of his pair uh, in page 65. He says, it is worth noting that... Um, Nestorius's reference to Mary indicates the growing significance of the mother of Jesus in Christian thought by the end of the 4th century. In the 2nd century, theologians like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus had begun to contrast Mary's obedient service to God with Eve's earlier disobedience. So they, they say Eve, the original woman, was disobedient. Mary, in some sense, has a redemption element by being obedient. Um, because Irenaeus had this idea called the recapitulation theory, and that meant that Jesus had to experience every segment of the life of humanity. He had to recapitulate it in order to redeem it. So he did that through his infancy, all the way through his life. But if, as we know, that Jesus was crucified when he was about 33 years old, that would mean Jesus never entered into a midlife crisis that would mean Jesus never entered into his 50s. He never, got, he never got old, really. He was still in the prime of life at age 33. So Irenaeus says that it was, I believe it was Irenaeus who says it's apostolic tradition that Jesus lived into his 50s, which we all know is not true. But you start to see even the early church fathers making appeal to tradition, Apostolic tradition. So this is a this is a whole other subject, but um, 
that's where the recapitulation, recapitulation theory um, comes up. By the mid-4th century, it was becoming customary to call Mary the ever-virgin, as Athanasius did, and so to affirm her perpetual virginity. Spurred by arguments like Neostorius's on the Theotokos, debate about the humanity of Christ also heightened the importance of Mary in the church's general consciousness. Now, he goes on to say that in the, both the Mediterranean world and Northern Europe, goddesses have always played a prominent role in pagan religions, and those who were accustomed to worshiping female deities found in Mary not exactly a substitute god, but a female figure to whom it seemed only natural to pay religious attention. By the time that Nestorius introduced debate on Mary as Theotokos, forces inside the believing community as well as outside from pagan religious habits were combining to push Mary into the forefront of the church's life. Because Nestorius preaches this sermon denying that Mary bore Jesus as the bearer of God. He, he said that Mary did not give birth to God. She gave birth to a human Jesus whose humanity, united to the divine Logos, must be understood as separate and distinct from his divine nature. So his argument centered on Mary did not bear God. And that's so the, the pushback from that is, no, Mary! And, and what Mark Knoll is saying is, is that part of the prominence of Mary and it was in an effort to push back against the Nestorian idea that, um, that Jesus is not really fully God and fully human uh, together. So sometimes when we react against something that's wrong, our reaction can create other things that are wrong. I don't know if you've ever done that in your marriage or uh, with other people. Um, uh, for example, if uh, if somebody if somebody harms you in some way and your response is to shoot them, uh, obviously your response is uh, not appropriate. Even though what they did initially was wrong, your your reaction is is too far. Well, there's varying degrees of that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the reaction with Mary is equivalent to getting shot. What I am saying is, is that the, uh, there is a reaction to the bad theology of, of some of these guys, and it creates other issues. Um, and we're all guilty of that, you know? Uh, all of us are. So, Nestorius, he, he denies that Mary was, in fact, the bearer of God. Okay, let's turn the page. Cyril, Cyril, um, he's the bishop of Alexandria. So, so uh, Nestorius, he's coming out of Antioch and Alexandria. These guys are they just don't everything coming out of here. They don't like each other. Cyril, which if you should somebody should consider naming their child that, um, just I don't know, it'd just be fun. He rebukes Nestorius for denying that Jesus is the one incarnate nature of the divine Logos. He argues that Nestorius' Jesus was schizophrenic, two persons having no relation at all. Um, let's go to the next page that gives us an outline of the formulas. This is helpful, by the way, just to keep. I think this kind of stuff here is helpful for you to have. The Alexandrian um, side of their belief about who Jesus was. They, one human body, one divine soul is Jesus. Criticism of this, according to Mark Knoll, is it's, this puts Jesus neither fully human or divine. He's half human, half divine soul, totaling up together as one. That's kind of like in the Trinity, uh, dividing God into thirds and saying one-third of God is the Holy Spirit, one-third of God is the Father, one-third of God is the Son. But that is not true. The Holy Spirit is 100% God. Jesus is 100% God. The Father is 100% God. They are distinct in their persons. They are united in the being of God. So, Alexandrian, uh, the idea was, you know, you get half, half Jesus human, half Jesus divine, push them together, we get a whole Jesus. On the other side, Antioch, uh, Nestorian, uh, one human nature, 
one divine nature is Jesus. Uh, the criticism is that singularity or the unity of Jesus has been compromised. One human nature plus one divine nature, you really have two Jesuses. The hypostatic union, as we're going to see, is going to try to figure out a way to accurately and biblically describe what do we do with the human nature and the divine nature. And that's really what these guys are trying to do as well. So there's this council of Ephesus before the council of Chalcedon. Uh, about 20 years earlier, and this is the big fight that happens that leads to the Council of Chalcedon uh, that's called by the emperor because they, uh, they get together um, uh, at the Council of Ephesus, and there's a picture here of the ruins, and there's something really funny that happens. <laughs> I love this. Tempers flared between the Alexandrian and the, the Antioch supporters. Each group excommunicates the other. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, excommunicate means to remove from fellowship of the church. It means you're not allowed to be in the communion. It's church discipline. The church leaders... Uh, the part of the responsibility of church leaders is to examine um, different things going on in the church and sinfulness and persistent sinfulness, and that's where excommunication happens. Well, uh, heresy uh, and that sort of thing uh, is one of the reasons you get excommunicated from a church. If one of the elders or somebody here at the church was trying to come around and teach something like Jesus is a creature, he's the archangel Michael, we would kick them out. Okay? That would not be unloving. It would be loving. Well, first we would try to convince them that they're wrong. We would talk with them. There would be a loving approach. There would be steps that are taken. I don't know how many of those steps these guys took. Uh, but they, uh, the idea is that the church is a community of believers of sheep that need protected from wolves. So excommunication is a biblical thing. It's just hilarious how it also can be a power trip thing uh, when leaders start excommunicating each other. And this is not the first time that this is going to happen. Ken. Their, <laughs> their own. Not really. So Rome is not in the position that it soon is going to be. But what actually happens at Chalcedon, according to my understanding, and I need to find out definitively, uh, but my understanding is, is that really what happens here helps set the stage because Leo, his book on the two natures of Christ, which I haven't read, but reading this makes me want to read it, is just genius in the way that he uh, describes the hypostatic union, which is really majorly influences this council. Um, he's the, the bishop of Rome, who's ever there, and there's, there's evidence earlier that there's a plurality of elders there, meaning more than one. It's not, there wasn't this idea of, I don't, the, the Catholic argument that there's just this unbroken line of apostolic succession always through Rome, I don't think is, um, is really supported by early church history. But Rome is super important. Uh, but they, they're not saying anything about this just yet. Because this was really just between the two here. But, but well, let's keep reading because it, there's more fallout. Uh, Eutyches, he's a monk in Constantinople. He defends the word flesh position. Then Flavian, the archbishop of Constantinople, banishes Eutyches. Then Eutyches appeals to Alexandria, and he appeals to Rome in the West. Then uh, Dioscorus, Cyril's nephew and bishop of Alexandria, organizes a council to support Eutyches. Then at the council, Dioscorus disposed 
deposed Flavian from bishopric of Constantinople. Then Flavian appealed to the bishop of Rome, Leo I. So they are appealing back and forth. This is a political ping pong ball going back, and, and Leo does get consulted in it. Yes. Yes. No, but the bishop, the uh, the Roman emperor is still part of part of the uh, jockeying between Alexandria and Antioch, and the bishop of Constantinople. Part of that is because because he's here in Constantinople. The emperor of Rome is. Um, so part of it is to get him on their side, because he's a Christian too, ruling over now really a Christian empire at this point. Um, this is really going to develop in the next couple centuries more um, and more and more. But yes, that is what they want the emperors on their side, because the uh, well, you you see what happens. Um, how in the world did the Roman emperor have the authority to banish? Because, because the church and the empire are really wedded more and more deeply. Like, it's, uh, what are those little finger traps where uh, you just wind up more and more <laughs> intertwined? Um, that's, that's what's happening with the church and the state. Um, so, and I, and Ken, I, I feel like I don't, I don't have. I was telling Jennifer, there's so many details. Uh, I feel like I, I need to study this like a lot to get to where some of these questions I'm going to be better answering. But the answer is I, I don't exactly know where. I know it's like a frog boiling in a pot in in the relationship of the state and the church. And here we are 130 years after Nicaea, and we've got emperors just banishing heretics. So so you can see the development has happened. Um, I don't know if there's any official proclamations or anything like that that, that specifically states that uh, the emperors have that authority. I think they're just... Jumping in there as the emperor because his I they want peace uh, because there's not peace when you have people excommunicating each other. <laughs> so that's I know that's the goal of what they're doing. But but all of this division and fighting leads to the Council of Chalcedon. Um, Marcion he's actually the brand new emperor just like within a year. And he wants to bring an end to the chaos that's been happening. Um, and this is where Leo I, uh, this is where his book, uh, The Tome, is greatly, greatly used and influences the council. Uh, I read uh, some of it, some of the stuff that, that he said. It's just really, really well put. Um, so we're going to get into what the whole idea of the Council of Chalcedon was to get a definitive statement on the nature of who Jesus is, um, or his nature as fully God and fully man. So the next page gives what it's called Chalcedon in a box, that he's fully God, he's fully human, he's one person, but there are two distinct natures in Christ. The two distinct natures are that he's fully God and fully human in one person of Christ, and those two natures are distinct, they're not mixed together. Um, here's some of the triumphs of the statement that they come up with, which we're about to get to here in just a second. Uh, sound doctrine prevails over error in the church, Christian Catholicity over cultural fragmentation. Catholic just means unified. Uh, that's what that's what it means. Does everybody have this one? The triumphs of Chalcedon? 
Are they out of order? No. Did I jump ahead? Did I skip one? I don't have it in mine. Oh, yeah. Can I have that one? I thought something seemed wrong. Yeah, Pope Leo. I kept waiting because we were going to get to... All right. Basically, this is just showing who Jesus... Uh, what Pope Leo uh, I uh, said. And the, the excerpts you read in the book are really, really good. Uh, the way he words it, it's really, really clear. Jesus is a single person. He has two natures. Salvation depends on Jesus as a fully human and fully divine person. Human-divine interchange of attributes are in the person of Jesus, uh, maintains distinctive natures and unity of person. So in Christ, there are two natures, fully God, fully man. They are joined in what is called the hypostatic union of Christ, which we are okay to call some sort of mystery, so that the two natures are distinct, but yet one person. I want to give that back to you. Okay. Go to go to the triumphs. I've already Am I missing more than this just one page? Is there another page? What is, what is that? The all the box. So So what's after the box? Am I missing Okay, so now we're on the triumphs. Okay. not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is just what Mark Knoll considers the good that came out of Chalcedon. Um, there were so many errors and so many ideas and so many thoughts that Chalcedon triumphed in that it got a solid doctrinal biblical definition of who Jesus is. Um, all the fragmentation, and a lot of this is regional, that's why I think this map is helpful to keep to look at the all the fragmentation and the fighting. Um, Marknell specifically says that Chalcedon proves that God can do unifying work in the midst of all kinds of chaos, um, and that's what number two is. Number three, discriminating theological reasoning over anti-intellectual dismissal of philosophy. Um, this is going to show up more later in the difference between the East and the West. Um, the categories in the mind of the West are what they call forensic. In other words, I want facts. I want logical conclusions. I want to come to uh, judicial uh, agreements and understandings based on the facts and the evidence. Um, kind of like classical education. The, the logic and the grammar and the, the rhetoric, all of that is the, the mindset of the West, whereas in the East, they're prizing spiritual experiences, um, the categories that they're using, they, they don't, um, to be honest, it's hard to even put in the words because it's, it's very different than the way we, we are definitely, well, we are in America, so we are way over here to the West, influenced by the West. Uh, we have a very Western mindset, and the church, what these groups over here that become what we know today as Eastern Orthodox, um, are really different. And some of this, some of the schisms and the separation uh, really start showing themselves here uh, in Chalcedon, but that it's going to continue. But uh, Mark Knoll makes the statement that really Chalcedon unified around the hypostatic union and that understanding of Christ, the church, uh, for several hundred years before uh, in the 11th century when there's a split, which is going to be one of the turning points that we talk about. Um, so that's what he's talking about here. There was anti-intellectual dismissal of philosophy, that's specifically Greek philosophy, which uh, all these discussions around the hypostatic union um, had an element of Hellenistic or Greek 
philosophical understanding and categories of natures and persons and joined together. All of that, uh, there were people that were trying to get rid of that. Um, or on the other end of the spectrum, people who are giving up a sound biblical doctrine in favor of 100% Platonistic Greek philosophy. The, the church dealt with this a lot in these early days where you had people that were drifting towards um, Greek philosophy that they were heavily influenced by and the people that wanted to reject it outright. So the hypostatic union, according to Mark Knoll, was really uh, within the church a way that it was married together. Um, that there, Well, he's actually going to say that, I think, on the next slide. So let me... Let me go to the next one. The next couple, actually. Here's the intellectual cultural importance of Chalcedon. Avoid the extremes of word flesh Christology that tend to devalue Christ's humanity. They devalued his body, flesh, nature, the natural mundane life, regular human activity, suffering and pain. Avoid the extremes of the word man Christology that tend to subvert organic divine human connection. Divide life in the sacred and secular bits. Things of God and the world not integrated. In other words, uh, it's easy to look at your life split up as my church life and my real life out here at work and family as if they're not connected because they are connected. Secularizing effect on life in this world separated from life in God in this world. That's what I was just saying. Um, so what Chalcedon does is the worldly existence, which was emphasized in Antioch, and the spiritual matters, which were emphasized in Alexandria, they're held together in a balance, which had a lot to do with Leo, the first book. So here's your application. Christians can live in the world and also for the glory of God. Since Jesus was one person like us who coexisted in the world with the fact of two natures, those who have the Spirit of Christ indwelling them can live the balanced, organic life of spiritual life in this world. In other words, we can look to the hypostatic union of Christ and that uh, the same way we are not the same as he was, because we are not divine. However, we, we have somewhat of the experience of um, being born again and living in this world simultaneously. So we, there's an application to us that um, we, can, we can reach this world for Christ and we can live our life for Christ to the glory of God, um, relying on Him, knowing that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, knowing that we have a faithful high priest that we can go to before the throne of grace in time of need and ask for mercy and ask for help. Um, Chalcedon was the council that was trying to bring peace, uh, doesn't entirely do that, but it has a huge effect um, because it, it defined Jesus, and it well. One of the things Mark Knoll says is it created a box. Um, it it didn't answer every question, but it by defining the two natures that Jesus in one person has two natures, divine and human. It created a box theologically for people to stay inside the boundaries and not get out here into crazy land. That's really what it did, so that so that the Christian can go deep inside this box scripturally into who Christ is without getting into weird stuff. So how about we actually read, and I'll do this quick, the Chalcedonian Creed. Because I think that's helpful. So if you go to your... I'm not going to go over... I included a really... Uh, I thought great explanation from Dr. Keith Matheson. Uh, he was writing in the Table Talk magazine, which R.C. Sproul puts out, that I think is really helpful, but I'm not going to go over all of that. But I am going to read the Chalcedonian Creed. So 
This is a paragraph in this council. So following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father. That means of the same substance. You guys remember that from Nicaea. Consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. So he was of the same substance as human beings, and he is of the same substance of divinity. He is fully God and fully man. Like us in all respects except for sin, that's a really important one, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, the Theotokos, as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. That's a really awesome statement. And and really the, the point of all this stuff, and I know there's a lot of things that are easily forgotten in here that we went over, but if you walk away, remember this. There was crazy chaos all over the empire over exactly how to describe the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And that chaos uh, that was political and theological all over the empire came uh, was called together in a council to come up with what is the true way to look at Jesus through Scripture. Because we keep encountering... Uh, all this, we keep encountering text of Scripture uh, where he, he's eating, and yet he's telling people before Abraham was, I am. What do, what do we, how do we figure this out about who he is? And, and this statement uh, was a major milestone and a turning point uh, in the church where the church was threatening the splinter all over the place this kept everything together. Now, there's splinters coming, but this uh, was really a logical outflow of Nicaea because once you define that Jesus is God, the next logical step is going to be defining who um, exactly as Christ in the flesh is, and then we're going to get to, uh, I believe we're getting to Well, the Holy Spirit becomes a part of that as well.